0: Well, I'm certainly glad you could join us tonight, Amber.
1: Oh, sorry, you <laughs> you were
0: fine with Chris. Yeah, it was a lot of fun last week. Yeah. What a night we had here. I'm 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 feeling pretty tired right now.
1: You're always tired, but I think our equipment is finally behaving. After you spent all week working and laboring and sweating and yeah. swearing, are you flipping me off right now?
0: No, I'm not flipping you off. Oh,
1: you itched your face with your middle finger. That's classic. Like,
0: no, I didn't mean to. Oh. I was like, what did I do? No, no, you didn't do (laughs) anything. Yeah, I spent some time on this again this week. We're just fine-tuning all this new equipment. And yeah, this turned into what was supposed to be a relaxing weekend to unwind from the insanity that was last week. And it turned into literally Friday night, diving back into this and fighting with it until Saturday night, basically. Yeah. But I think we're getting there.
1: No, I, 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 you'll listen to this and you won't. Like in the past, what, three shows? There was kind of the... we well, had a problem with the
0: phone line. There was a yeah. buzz. Yeah, so we had to rectify that problem. And we're getting there with that. And just all the little fine-tuning stuff. All you amateur podcasters out there like us, you know what we're talking about. But I think we're getting there. We're going to make it here sooner or later. Um, but yeah, this new equipment's really cool. <laughs> I'm really excited about all this new stuff. We had a hell of a night tonight, I, yeah, and I am I tired, was, man. This was this was really awesome to talk. This to. is a
1: guess that if yeah. we probably, you know, in the future could do like a three hour show with or give him a proper at least bathroom break, and <laughs> get back into it.
0: Yeah, yeah, but, but we. Yeah, we, I really want to talk to this guy again. This is somebody I really think I'd like to meet, per, you know, like a conference or something like that. Maybe go to a conference to actually yeah. meet John. And we're talking about John D'Souza. Uh, John D'Souza was an FBI special agent investigator for over 20 years and a collector of the real-life X-Files. Today, he is revealing these stories as a leading researcher and writer on the paranormal. He was an attorney and investigator who maintained a top-secret security clearance for many years. This background infused him with an ability to decipher mysteries that are beyond conventional abilities. Guys, please enjoy our talk with John D'Souza. John D'Souza here tonight, and we're super excited. Amber, when I mentioned this, you went crazy. Like well, you just I went, went completely crazy. It gives crazy. me excuse
1: to buy more books. <laughs> so I just got two of his books on Sunday, yeah. and it's really hard to get me to sit down and not keep moving and put the book down and get distracted by my phone. Yeah, and i've 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 been reading. I've been actually looking forward to reading more and more in the book because the, this is intense, good stuff, and it's something that i have not how, how do i how do i say it? i i this is not the usual paranormal yeah stuff that everyone has recycled and put into their books this is where it needs to be going really yes
0: well i have a surprise for you amber guess what what john DeSouza oh is on the phone right now john how are you tonight
2: Oh, I'm great, Scott. Amber, it's great to be on here with you on Ghostly Talk Radio. Thank you so much. I'm yeah, so happy to be
0: here. Thank you, man. And we appreciate you taking the time and uh, to chat with us also. And as we said, Amber hasn't put your books down all weekend. So, uh, and she's a hard sell. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she's a hard sell. Uh, but Amber, I want to I well, I want to ask you, Amber, to start off here. Uh, what what's has you intrigued right now with, with John? Just just Everything. so we can get the, just to get just to wet our feet a little bit here.
1: I, I well I mean I, I always like a good introduction to someone. So yeah, yeah. obviously John has been involved with the FBI mm-hmm. and he's been the collector of the real X Files. So I wanna hear how he got started in all of this.
0: John, can we ask you that yeah. question? Is that cool or are we gonna get in oh, trouble? Yes,
2: <laughs> Amber. That's uh that's very cool. Let me uh tell you that uh when I, and this is a, it's a really strange story that uh, people can look up and see what I'm talking about. When I was going at first going to the FBI, uh, way back a long time ago, a long, long time ago, I was uh, being recruited into the FBI and I ultimately I went to the FBI Academy. I was uh, one of the youngest people ever to get the position of FBI agent. I think I was like, I was like 23, 23 years old. That's young. And they don't hire that. Yeah, they don't hire that young anymore for that position. Uh, that's age has gone to like 32, something like that. And when I went, I, I did something, kind of foolish when I went to the academy, which was, I uh, started asking, asking around because we had a lot of, different law enforcement people there at the academy from all over the world. Uh, because there's actually a, something called the National Academy there that trains police and people from all over the world. Uh, and so, what I did was I wanted to find out about a case that had uh, had given the FBI a lot of problems a couple of years previous to that. Way back in 19, there was 80, 85, mm-hmm. 1985, 1986. Yeah. there were a couple a couple of bank robbers named Maddox and Platt who were very successful bank robbers in miami florida they had gone around robbing a lot of banks and they had uh been uh, there was a task force an fbi task force that accurately predicted where they were going to go next to rob a bank so the task force was there waiting for them with a bunch of cops and a bunch of fbi agents and they had lots of guns and sure enough maddox and platt showed up and they told them to you know surrender drop their guns And they didn't. And they were immediately gunned down by the uh, FBI agents on the scene. Except they didn't fall down. What happened was they got right up. They had lots of guns themselves. And they proceeded to make a semicircle around a parking lot and kill a bunch of FBI agents and wound a bunch of others. Even though they themselves were being shot. uh, uh, They were being shot uh, fatally. Like one of them took a shot through the aorta, the aorta that connects to the heart, yeah. And the other one took many shots to, all over to the internal organs as well. But it didn't stop them, and they basically just killed a bunch of FBI agents and, and uh, pretty fatally wounded many others. And then they got into their car, into their car to drive away. And the only reason the car didn't didn't start up. Uh, they tried starting it up, and the only reason it didn't start up was because it had taken so many bullets, in this barrage of bullets through the transmission, that it just didn't, it wouldn't start. And yeah. at that moment, uh, one of the FBI agents who had been very severely wounded uh, popped up with a shotgun and uh, was able to shoot both of them through the spinal column that connects the skull to the uh, to the neck. And that's how they finally... Finally, stopped them. Finally, killed them. That was the only thing. And
0: these guys weren't—they weren't wearing bulletproof vests, as far as weren't you could wearing tell. Any protection at all? They had
2: flannel shirts and jeans on. That's it, and ball caps. Uh, The—that uh, was it. And they had no special gear. So it was a big scandal in the FBI as to how these guys were able to do that, uh-huh. what they did, especially because they had a bunch of dead FBI agents uh, at the scene, yeah. and somebody needed to explain that. At the time. The big there was this was like in the late well, this was like the middle eighties. This was in the eighties. And the the scientists uh tended they, they were saying in the news that it had to be angel dust, that they were both loaded up on angel <laughs> dust. That was a very popular drug at the time, mm-hmm. or, or some kind of like horse tranquilizers or something
0: like that. Well, it's funny and as it, as you were saying that I was thinking like I was just getting like the ending scene of Scarface in my head with Tony Montana yes. just doing piles of blow. And he was taking bullets like that. It's the same idea. So, yeah, this is exactly what you're saying, too. Right.
2: So there was a lot of pressure for the scientific types to find out what happened. Uh, Their apartments were searched very carefully, torn to pieces. And it turned out they didn't even have marijuana. They didn't have anything in their systems. Toxicology came back. And they had absolutely no drugs whatsoever. They hadn't even drank alcohol the day That they went to rob those banks, they had nothing in their systems. So that was a huge shock when that came back from the scientific types that were involved, and nobody could explain what happened. So uh, the FBI just decided to uh, put it in their academy teaching uh, for the for agents, just to show the power of determination when people have the power of determination. And I mean, that's all they could really do because there was no explanation for what. How these guys did what they did., uh, but when I went to the academy, uh, there were a couple of sheriff's deputies there uh, that had lo- local police that had actually worked that case and that helped with some of the searches of their apartments. And what I was able to get from them was that they found they found no substances in their apartments at all. Mm-hmm. There was no you know sort of cover up or anything of that sort. And that they barely found tobacco, I mean cigarettes. That was about it. That was all that they found. Uh, when they, But one strange thing that they told me they found was they found a little altar, a worship altar. Apparently, these guys were Odinists. They worshipped the Norse gods. Yeah. And they had a little sort of makeshift uh, altar to the Norse god Loki, the trickster god. Okay. And the day they went to Rob Bank, they had actually done some incense uh, burning up, uh, some uh, incense burning for loci and when i got that from those deputies i said to them that was it that's how they did it and they told me what are you what are you talking about i said they somehow loci this norse Scot, came through and in return for whatever worship gave them this power to confound uh, law enforcement to this this supernatural ability, and I said that's the only answer. That's the only answer there is because there was nothing else found yeah. that could have helped them with what they did. And so I got back I got back that information, and ultimately at the FBI Academy, the the authorities found out that I was uh, asking questions about this, and they weren't happy about it. It led to me being uh, being uh, threatened and uh, punished. I was told I would never graduate the Academy. They were looking at me uh, thinking that I was some kind of undercover New York Times reporter or something of that sort. They were very unhappy. And I was told to stop uh, inquiring into, especially into sacred kind of important cases that the FBI had up on a pedestal. Uh, And so it was not very good. And and I was told I would never graduate the Academy. Ultimately, I did, of course, and I got through. And uh, But when I went to my first office of assignment, uh, the authorities over there at the uh, FBI Academy actually called my first office and told them that this guy likes paranormal cases for some reason. So let's, uh, let's load him up with some of those, anything you got, and keep him busy with that stuff because he seems to enjoy it. So that was what happened. And mm-hmm. my being assigned paranormal cases, my first instance— was a punishment it was supposed to be a, a, a huge punishment well, and I, uh, that's I don't, I don't, ultimately how it started
0: if we could back up just a second though concerning these two robbers mm-hmm. right um nobody mm-hmm. had it it seems to me in the situation that you're describing no one knew what the hell happened here no one knew what was going on and i mean sure. it, it seems like they're going awful hard on you for just asking some simple like trying to figure out some simple ideas of what may have happened now um I'm sorry, I got the memory of a goldfish tonight. Apparently, the, the Norse god you were referring to, Loki. Loki. Okay. Um, I mean, maybe these. I mean, maybe it wasn't even supernatural. I'm just playing devil's advocate for a second here. Okay, maybe it was just. I mean, I've seen people who get so you know hyped up on an idea, right? that they get their adrenaline level so high that they become superhuman to a certain degree, right? Uh, I think the power right. of thought and belief can, do, can make a person do amazing things, um, why, which I do find completely, you know, it's strange. It's very weird. Uh, yeah. But I don't understand why they went so hard on you about that for just simply asking some questions like, hey, well, these guys were obviously doing some type of Norse worship here. This could have been, yeah. whether, whether it was supernatural or not, it, it, it This could be the idea, you know, this could be the what, what made these guys do what they did, how they behave, yep. right? Yeah. I don't understand why, right. why they went so hard on you about that.
2: Yeah, and the reason for that would be because this was like uh, going after a sacred cow at the FBI, something that was considered something very uh, untouchable that you shouldn't be questioning, uh, kind of like uh, if you were to go after uh, what happened at Pearl Harbor, in front of, uh, military officers and say, and start saying, you know, something was done incorrectly here. You know, this was the military, uh, screw this up. Uh, it wouldn't be received very well. It oh, okay. would be considered. So it was, that was the reason why it's because this case is considered something because there were a bunch of FBI agents that, uh, died and were grievously wounded Yeah, at a single, I think the most at a single incident in the history of the FBI. Oh my goodness. Um, so for that reason, it was considered something untouchable that shouldn't be looked into or questioned in any way, especially yeah. by someone that's uh, that's in the FBI.
0: That yeah. was the reason why. Which I do understand to a certain degree. I think I I don't think their families would want. <laughs> that's that. I think I think it's what this yeah. is circling around is just the fact that yeah. these people that were killed, uh, it would be very yeah. difficult for them to take that kind of news. Like these guys were worshiping Loki. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I'm not making yeah. light of it in any way, but that's yeah. I can understand what you're saying now. Yeah.
2: Right. And I understand what you're saying about, uh, people, uh, maybe there, and that's what the FBI scientists were saying. Uh, ultimately they had to say was that there were no substances involved. There was no outside cause. This was just a question of enormous adrenaline and people who believed in their cause. Yeah. But the problem with that explanation is that their cause was robbing banks. I could see it was robbing banks. There was no, you know, great, uh, mission here, no great cause mm-hmm. that we could see, that we could see that would make people fanatical, you know, fanatical kind of yeah. uh, Sardukar on this. Uh, it just wasn't there. So that's that's the problem with that kind mm. of explanation. That's the reason that that didn't really just hold up snuff for me.
0: So you get put into this position after that, where you're more or less being tasked with all these strange cases. Am I correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So I have a couple in front of me here. So why don't we start? I mean, and I think this is where we're, this is one of, this may be one of them. You tell me if I'm wrong, uh, the sheriff's basement is this oh, yeah. one, of, one of these things you worked on. Yeah.
2: yeah. Sheriff's basement was, um, it was what we call a police cooperation desk and the paranormal desk at the FBI was basically me and my partner. That was it. And so there was sometimes what would happen would there would be jurisdictions. That were where you had a sheriff or somebody else in charge of a jurisdiction, uh, police jurisdiction, where they were at the end of their rope, and they would ask the FBI for some kind of subject matter expert to help on this kind of thing. Yeah. Whether it was UFO abductions or something else, in this case, the sheriff, the story that we call the sheriff's basement, was the sheriff of a like a middle-sized jurisdiction where he had the largest prison in the in the in the jurisdiction basically. It was the basement of his headquarters. It was the basement of his headquarters, was a a substantial size prison. You know, I would say I would say maybe like a maybe about uh seventy five to a hundred beds, uh, uh cells beds, however okay. you refer to that. And which was which is a pretty good size, uh for for a small town like that. Anyway, the problem was that he had he had all these um phenomena that were going on, unexplainable phenomena we say now uh, he had uh, cell doors opening and closing on their own, which was physically not possible because mm-hmm. all the cells doors are connected to each other. they're on the same they're on the same uh, mechanism.
0: yeah yeah
2: and they can't open and close independently when
0: there's no one on this particular cell block area and they're supposed to be like, like and I've seen these before we've we've all seen these in prisons uh most of these cells they just they're they're all on one bar so it's one switch that right. opens the whole the whole cell block up
2: right right so it's, it's bizarre actually physically impossible for these things to to open and close independently yeah. and yet you see right on CTV, and according to testimony as well they were doing exactly that and there were heavy objects flying around at different times uh, you know, this was not plastic furniture and uh, fish wire. you know we checked for hoaxes. we checked for we checked for plumbing that may have been accounting for this terrible moaning that would be going on at different times as well. Mm-hmm. And we checked for all the usual hoax uh, type devices that would be would be in play in a situation like this, and we couldn't find anything like that. And then, when we did the interviews of both prisoners and employees, everybody was. Uh, was absolutely certain that this was genuine, unexplained phenomena. They were, they had no doubt, no doubt in their minds at all. And so we were just, uh, we had to go to the next phase. We had to check on, we had to check on history of uh, prisoners that may have been killed under, under strange circumstances. But one of the employees told us, "No, you're looking in the wrong spot." He said, "Check out an employee that was killed here on the block, an employee." that was killed on the block a sheriff's deputy who was killed on the block about 10 years ago by three escaping inmates who were able to get him and he described the employee to me i uh, said he was a big burly guy with a crew cut blonde hair graying, and just a unmistakable kind of uh look to the guy and so we checked records on the circumstance we checked records on that and it was very it was very interesting it was uh uh, it was an anomaly what happened to this particular sheriff's deputy and the employee who told us about it
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, he actually knew the guy he had he worked with the guy uh, and he said it was the greatest tragedy. it's single greatest tragedy that ever occurred at this uh, at this prison system. and then we went we had to respond somewhere else for a weekend. and during that weekend, what happened was, there was an escape attempt by three emplo- uh, three prisoners, again, like what happened 10 years prior. And that employee, that sheriff's deputy who told us about the previous one, got was involved in it. He was actually assaulted by three inmates that got a hold of some heavy stuff, uh, because you know, prisoners are supposed to only have only have uh, plastic furniture and things like things like that mm-hmm. but they got to hold of some heavy stuff they beat him they beat him very badly
0: mm-hmm. it was
2: nighttime and they beat him very badly his eyes were swollen shut and they were about to cave his skull in and he says out of nowhere a big person's hand just came and stopped this two by four from just going through his head and then he he said he could barely see but he could see the outline, and it was that employee he had told us about, the sheriff's deputy from 10 years previous. He said it was him. He could tell his silhouette. Nobody had a silhouette like him. Mm. Big, burly guy with a crew cut, kind of blondish, graying uh, crew cut, and he said he was punching at these prisoners, but he couldn't see him connecting. He just saw light kind of exploding in the prisoners' faces, and they were terrified. He said the prisoners immediately... Knew what was going on, and they broke and they ran, and uh, we found them later. We responded to that, and uh, we found them later hiding in different parts of the prison. And they were crying, crying their eyes out, and we were we tried to make sense of the situation, and that deputy, of course, he was hospitalized, and we uh, spoke to him, and he basically told us our, ex- our investigative conclusion, which we then brought to the sheriff which was that all this poltergeist activity that had gone on was nothing more and nothing less than this precise deputy from 10 years previous who had suffered this, who had died yeah. in that prison in a very similar incident. He was doing, he was actually creating this poltergeist activity to try to warn about the same event, more or less the same event happening again to his good friend. Yeah, And, the sheriff's deputy, who had been beaten, told us now he realized what it was all about, and it just made sense to him.
0: Well, that's an emotional and... thing too. That's really emotional for that for that gentleman. It, I mean, it was. It's his life was saved. He said he would have been killed. He
2: would have been killed for certain.
0: What I'm curious about, him. if you if you if you know anything about this, the the prisoners who were being who, who were mm-hmm. being attacked, let's just say being attacked back, did they say they felt anything, or was it just Something they saw. They didn't feel anything like any type of pressure on their, on their, their heads or their bodies from punches, Did, or was it just something they saw? Do you follow what I'm saying?
2: Yeah, they said they saw and they felt that this was something supernatural right away. And they said, because of the nature of the prison and what everybody knows about what goes on in the prison, they said immediately they knew that this was not something physical. Uh, and that made them more scared than If it had been physical and that's why they broke and that's why they ran when it happened and they were it was difficult to get that out of them yeah but but eventually yeah they they knew it was they said they knew right away it was something that that on the physical couldn't hurt them but they were they said that they were afraid for their souls
0: well it's the unknown period i mean we say that all the time here the own i mean at least i say this a lot is the unknown equals death and death frightens people still, I think. Uh, so when you're faced with something that you just can't understand and you don't, you, you just don't understand it, that's the unknown, simply put. Uh, and I think that's probably, I mean, to me, that seems like that's why that would scare them so much.
2: Right. And we ended up bringing that investigative conclusion to the sheriff after all that. And we told him, we're pretty sure, we're pretty sure that that's the ending of your, Of your Poltergeist activities, and we hung out for about a week longer, and uh, sure enough, it did occur. I mean, there was nothing more after that. So the sheriff was—he took it, he took it and ran with it. He was happy.
0: So this whole this whole occurrence, this whole story that played out, was just for the sole purpose of saving this man's life. Am I correct?
2: That's how it looked. Yeah, that's how it looks. Absolutely.
0: And I mean, and. I mean, we hear about this idea of spirits, souls, whatever you want to call them. Sometimes they're stuck here. I mean, that explains ghosts to a certain degree. If you want to go down that that, idea, that way of thinking, sometimes spirits are, are stuck here for a while and they have some business they have to take care of before they can move on to whatever, wherever else where they may go. We don't know yet, right? Right. This,
2: right. And I want to point out there was, I mean, everyone involved did see a physical intervention though because he was being struck in the head uh, with a two by four Mm -hmm. and he was being struck and he said it was the it was the last blow that was coming down and it was going to open up his skull and he says they clearly they all saw a big a large man's hand come and stop that blow just short of his head and he says it just came out of nowhere and he said everybody's and everyone did see that yeah but that was the only let's say
0: physical physical yeah
2: that uh,
0: that they saw wow. at that point yeah that's spooky i mean and we've heard these stories we it's kind of a romantic. i mean i dare i use this term but it's a it's a romantic type of idea it's a it's a it's an emotional story i mean i like to think that this gentleman yeah when when he expired he was told by something or whatever it may be that, hey, you've you got to stay here. There's something you got to do, and you'll know when it's time to take care of it, and we'll take care of things after that. But you have to stay there until this happens. And just assuming, you know, this gentleman is waiting around, <laughs> obviously having fun with the cells and the stuff like that, but when yeah. it comes to his time, he knows it. Right. And this is just my mind wandering on a story that you just told me. Right. Uh, But I I like to think of it that way, that um, he had he had a job he had to do. And once he got that job done, he was able to move on to wherever else you go. So that's really a fascinating story, John.
2: Um, Yeah. And I'll tell you, the sheriff did not. He was not happy when we brought him that conclusion. Yeah. He did not believe for a moment that the poltergeist activity was going to stop after that weekend yeah and he was very pleasantly surprised when it did it stopped completely and there was no more problem yeah and so you know like i said he he did not believe it he did not believe that was it and uh he was just ecstatic when it did it did come to a conclusion
0: la lorna did i pronounce that right i totally screwed it up Oh.
2: Oh, you're trying to say La Jorona?
0: Oh, that's why. I knew I destroyed it. I should have just read The Banshee Woman. That's easier to pronounce. So yeah. La Jorna, La right? Or did La Giorona. Oh, forget it. Forget yeah, it. Don't I, ask Scott. Don't to, ask. No, no. I am far from bilingual man. I am not bilingual man whatsoever. The Banshee yeah. Woman. Tell us all about yes. The Banshee Woman, please. Okay. I had, um,
2: this is an experience that was uh, brought to me by a person that was, uh, that's a, a good friend of mine. Well. I mean, a, a person that I trust. Let's put it that way. He was an attorney. He was an attorney in New York, out of New York City, and he was a person who uh, traveled with a water company uh, to South America. The um, La Llorona is Spanish. It's a it's a phenomenon that happens in South America, Central America, uh, Mexico, and it's it's very well known uh, phenomenon. It's uh, also known as the banshee woman, and it's it's just basically this. This woman in long white dress who travels along, walks along waterways in the dead of night and screams in the screaming out for her children because her children were supposedly murdered. And she just travels up and down along rivers and waterways. And just just late at night, you can hear her shrieking out loud and in Spanish countries, they they call that la llorona cuz it translates to literally the crying woman the crying wailing let's mm-hmm. say it that way wailing woman like not just a cry cry but like screaming cry yeah. you know out loud and so it's a common phenomenon it's very well known anyway this guy was a pretty he's a pretty savvy savvy individual and he went to a, he had he was at a hotel central america in Central America, and there was, of course, it had had to be a hotel that uh, there was was along a waterway, along a sort of river slash stream, mm-hmm. and but the stream was a bit a bit ways out from the hotel. And when he settled in for the night, uh, the uh, staff gave him a briefing about, uh, hey, if you hear anything strange outside. Uh, just close your shades and close your uh, shutters um, and just don't pay attention. If you don't pay attention, it goes away. It goes away in a short time. But if you pay attention, it'll get, it'll get, uh, it'll go on for quite
0: a while. I'd be changing my accommodations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I yeah. don't need to hear this right now.
2: Yeah. Well, because he worked for the water, he was working for a water company. Yeah. He had to be, everything was close to the water. Uh. Uh, where he was, he had to be. Um, so. Anyway, he uh, sure enough in the middle of the night, he was he stayed dressed because he knew something was going to happen. He had a feeling and he wanted to be ready when it did. And sure enough, about uh, three in the morning, uh, three in the morning, uh, he started hearing that wailing, that wailing out there. And it sounded like a woman in crazy kind of distress. And so he sure enough, he went out right out his window. And he because he was on the first floor and he went out the window and he went out there. Uh, to see, and it was a little scary, it's a little dark as he got further from the hotel, closer to where the stream was, and he got out there as far as he dared to go, and sure enough he was confronted with uh, with uh, what looked like a tall, tall figure in a flowing white sort of dress gown Gown, mm-hmm. and he says he was confronted with it, and he, he was pretty sure that this was kind of like a tourist attraction uh, that they put on. And he's a very cynical person. Yeah. And he was pretty sure that this was just like something for the gringos entertainment <laughs> that they were to, and to scare them. You know, that's how he saw it. Yeah. And so he looked because he looked at her and she was, st- she was still, you know, a couple of hundred feet away from him. And so, and she just stood there and she was just kind of wailing at him. And he tried to talk and he tried to, quieter down he said hey i just want to find out what what the hell you are Mm -hmm. he tried talking to her and he was talking in spanish of course uh, and he was just he was trying to talk to her and he kind of he was also keeping an eye on how far he was from the hotel to make sure because he also was thinking well what if it wasn't a, a a kind of like a the hoax, what if it was just some crazy person with a butcher knife behind her back? So he was keeping an eye on how far he was from the hotel and make sure he could cover the distance in case, she, <laughs> in case she came at him with a butcher knife. And he was, so he was happy that she was staying, you know, a little bit further, far away from about 200 feet. And he was sure he could cover the distance in case she started coming after him. <laughs> And he was just looking at her and it was dark out there. I mean, there was no, no moon and it was, it was very dark, but he could still make out that long white robe. And she just screamed at him, my children. He tried to ask her questions. She just kept screaming, my children, my children. And finally he asked her, what happened to your children? And she screamed back in that high pitched crazy tone. She screamed back the men, they killed them. They killed them. And uh, he started and he started asking her questions. He said, When did they kill them? Did they kill them? Because this guy's an attorney. He starts mm-hmm. asking, did they kill them one by one? She said, she said, yes, one by one. And he said, They killed them one by one. How? She said, drowned them, drowned them in the water. Oh. She said, and, and that actually f- fits in with the legend that everyone knows about the Jorona, the, the Banshee woman. And because supposedly the story, the legend is that they came and they killed her children by drowning them in the, in the river. And so he said, now, if they killed them one by one, wouldn't you have left after they killed the first one? He said, wouldn't you have gone from the home? There's no answer. Wouldn't you have to save your other children? wouldn't you have gone? How many did they kill? Five of them. How could they kill five of them drowning them in the river one by one day after day? Wouldn't you have left? Wouldn't you have gone to save the others after the second one, Mm -hmm. after the third one? Wouldn't you have gone? Wouldn't you have left to save your children? And this was actually something he always wondered about the legend as well. So he was peppering her with these questions and she stopped talking. And finally she looked at him and she screamed out and she stopped answering. And she finally, she looked at him. She looked a bit brighter to him. Suddenly it's like she was being lit up somehow, uh, by a spotlight. And then she screamed at him, my children. And she came forward and covered the distance. Into his face. This is the last thing he remembered because he passed out. Uh, he, he was ready to run, but he said he couldn't he couldn't even make a step to run because this happened so quickly. Mm-hmm. He just remembers her lighting up and coming forward into his face. And he says, he just remembers her face coming right up to him as she screamed, My children. And then he remembers waking up a bit. Later, he remembers waking up face down in the stream, which thankfully was still just a stream, uh, and he was coughing up water, and he didn't know how much time had passed, but he just woke up. He was he would have drowned if he hadn't if he hadn't woken up, and he just woke up and he walked trudged back to the hotel, and he says it was the damnedest thing he'd ever experienced in his life. He felt completely freezing. He says he felt. That thing he came forward at an inhuman speed and it went right through him, as it was screaming, "My children!"
0: Yeah,
2: and he says that that was when he realized that it wasn't, it wasn't mm. what he thought it was. It wasn't just some crazy person, uh, standing there in a flowing rope. He mm. says it was something else, and he didn't realize till it went through him, at that phenomenal speed, to where it passed yeah. through him and he just felt ice. He yeah. felt ice and then he passed out.
0: And he had no contact. I'm gonna try, I'm gonna attempt this, La Girona. Yeah, get, did that's I, did close. I, yeah. Okay, it's a little better. Right. He didn't have any contact uh, with her after this at all. This was the only contact he had with her.
2: No, no, no contact after that because he evacuated the area, and he went back to the city to stay. After that, uh, he wasn't gonna be. He wasn't gonna be <laughs> out there in the countryside. The, the experience freaked him out. Yeah. And uh, and he tried to talk to the staff about it, and you know, so they just. They just told him that they warned him. They said to him just not to do what he did mm-hmm. and that he's lucky. He's lucky that he's alive because he says many of the people, he says, most people, they told him most people who do what he did confronting La Llorona. He says they find them drowned the next day, face down in the stream. Well, he I, says f- that's I, I almost
1: feel them. like the way he was questioning her and I don't mean, I don't know everything about this legend, but that she killed her kids.
2: That's I left that out. That was the final thing that he said to her. You know, thank oh, you for reminding me. Yeah. That was the final thing that he said to her um at the uh basically at the uh apex of their conversation. He said to her he screamed at her, "Lady, you killed the kids. You did it." Yeah. You're the only one who could have. No, there were no men. And that's when she yeah. She was it like, uh-uh. <laughs> in the water you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that
0: was it. That was it. Thank, what do you, so,
2: thank you very much, Amber. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what do you think she is, John? I mean, not to put you on the spot, but I'm just curious what's your opinion of, of, of what, of, I'm not even going to try it again, of what she is. What do you think?
2: You know, in that particular instance, I, I think she was a genuine uh, ghostly phenomenon in that particular instance, I think she was, she's like, um, uh, you know, it's like the, uh, stone tape theory. Yeah. Uh, she's a shadow of something unresolved mm-hmm. that, uh, that happened. And I think my, I think my friend was right. I think she killed her own kids and that, uh, she was unable to face that and that made her go crazy. And she was probably a genuine person, that did this, you know, long time ago because this legend has been going on in South America, Central America, and Mexico. This legend has been going on for over, you know, over a hundred years that I know about. Mm -hmm. And so this has this, that is a genuine ghostly recording of some kind.
0: It's a shade of something. That leads to the conclusion also that what you do in this physical life can carry over to whatever afterlife you may have too. I find that really interesting. Uh, I mean, and it's 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 logical, I guess, in a sense, if you if you believe in an afterlife and that you know ghosts exist. Uh, I it, I guess if you're just one soul that go that tra- that's traveling through all these dimensions or whatever you want to call them, this could be something, especially something that heavy too, right? Like something that that really, I mean. Taking the life of your own child, I think there's some emotion there. <laughs> and I, Absolutely. I mean that with a complete understatement. I don't think that's something assuming for a second that we you know we are souls that are that are, you know, timeless. We you know the soul that we carry and these physical bodies we have, it's a timeless artifact, right? Let's just assume that for a second. And all the things you do, wherever you are, whatever body you're in, they leave an impression on your soul. And there's good things and there's bad things. This, to me, is the worst thing. I mean, I can't really think of too many things that you can do as a being, let's say, um, such as killing your children. I don't think it gets any worse than that. I think that don't leave you. That's scars. That's not like an impression. That's a scar. Right. Yeah. And obviously, and with this story, and this is just my idea is, yeah, she's stuck here because, yeah, she's having to relive this over and over again. Uh, You know, that's just my idea. I mean, it's it's an interesting thought to, you know, when you really get into this idea of what a haunting may be uh, or what a ghost may be.
1: Well, and why yeah. it appears to some people and why not others? Like, why him? And then he's, in, he's able to interact with it and maybe other people, they can't interact with it. Like, that, that kind of stuff is mind-boggling to me, especially with legends that, like that that have been around for a long time mm-hmm. and all the yeah. different, different ways people experience that, that legend through, you know, their senses. Which brings me to an interesting part in, in your book, The uh, Para investigators, where you actually talk about how a lot of ta- people are just a box with five holes, And through those five holes, we, you know, have sight, sound, taste, you know, smell, all that stuff. And that's the only way we can experience stuff. But what if there was multiple holes in the box to experience things differently? So, you know, sometimes it makes me wonder, like, how we see through these five holes. But maybe your loyal friend, you know, has, like, oh, maybe he can see through a couple extras, which is why he's seen, you know, the crazy lady that killed her kids in the water. And now she's like, "Mm." (laughs) he sees me. Exactly. I, I don't know. It's just it's really... It's never-ending trippiness, which makes this topic so great to explore.
0: Well, I mean, and I was going to say, I mean, you very eloquently explained that in your book, John, uh, but I was just going to say, I'm like, well, because you you asked that, Amber. Uh, well, how can some people interact with this 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 entity and some people can't? Well, I mean, I I know I'm as psychic as this computer that's sitting in front of me. I It's something I accept and I'm trying to get better at stuff like that, but it's something that I'm not very sensitive to things, right? So I... I'm not saying that I wouldn't in that situation not see or hear anything, but I think that just some people have, I guess in this case, what you what you, you your description is, John, is some people maybe have more holes. <laughs>
2: yes. Yes, they do. Yeah. And I think uh, the uh, individual that witnessed this uh, phenomenon had a few more holes after that experience as well. <laughs> well and another thing I found out about uh, actually is that every, every continent, and I found this out by working in the, in paranormal, in uh, supernatural topics for so long, is that uh, every continent actually has similar similar um, phenomena to, that are called the white lady, the white lady. Like uh, Japan has a, a, a female named Otaku or something. I think it's Otaku is her name. And uh, whose, she and all of her children were uh, slaughtered by the emperor for some some who knows what what and this is you know this we're talking about like a thousand years ago yeah and so otaku in a long white robe again late at night you know usually very late at night mm-hmm. travels up and down the rivers up and down the rivers screaming and she's another banshee woman banshee woman that wails for her children and uh for justice for her children and uh, is, is seen and is heard by people all the time. And apparently, you know, many continents have the same, leg, very similar legend to the uh, to La Llorona as well.
0: What we see, we have a couple of legends here in Michigan, which are, the you know, we have the legend of Mini Quay, if I'm correct, Amber. Yeah. Or And there's also the cemetery out in Jackson, Reynolds Cemetery. Yeah. Or, yeah, Reynolds Cemetery. Uh, where it's a white figure, it's a white woman who you know, who now this is what, we, what we're what we talking about here, John. Is you know, these are obviously more poltergeist, more interactive type of entities. I'm referring to more uh, residual type hauntings, like you know, and this is these are legends that on the you know, on the 22nd of every November, this happens literally at yeah. Rental Cemetery. It, it's more, uh, these are more residual type hauntings, but we see there's you're right, there's stories like that, I think, all over the place where we see. Uh, the same type of figure, uh, you know, a white female, which does raise an interesting question because we hear about this with UFO studies, right, where we have this mass thing where like, well, we've all seen, we all saw this UFO on the same day, at the same time up in the sky in the same location, right? Maybe different but the same. A lot of people see the same type of ghostly phenomena too. And it seems like that would that would lend credence to that type of phenomena. I know people still, and obviously you've been on the ugly end of this, John, maybe more than once. Where when you start telling, "Well, I saw a ghost," I saw a ghost. Even in this day and age, people still will still kind of look at you funny and say, "Oh yeah, sure, you oh, saw yeah. a ghost." Yeah, you get, you get shamed for <laughs> it. You get shamed for it. So I mean, it seems like we have a lot of stories, um, a lot of uh, you know evidence, artifacts. Uh, witnesses, people who have seen a lot of the same things, like what what you're saying and what I'm cooperating with here, too. It it seems like that's some pretty good evidence leaning towards, yeah, we do see things like that. We do see ghosts. I mean, I'm not fighting for either or right now, but I'm just looking at the facts here. It seems like a lot of people see the same things, just like we see with UFOs and that same idea, right? What do you think about that?
2: I think that uh, we have uh, the idea that is gaining a lot of ground lately. Is that all of these phenomena, whether you're talking about UFOs, crypto creatures like Bigfoot, or uh, ghostly phenomena, mm-hmm. all of this stuff tends to be extra dimensional in nature. In other words, it kind of pops in and out of our existence, but it is not totally physical. It's not totally physical, and and UFOs share that with ghostly phenomena. And yet, and and yet, these these items. Um, you know, we've done investigations where we go into neighborhoods where these items seem to cross each other, cross each other at different times. So we'll go to a, an investigation where a neighborhood that there was a mass sighting of UFOs one particular night, and you go into there and you start questioning the neighbors and you start talking to them and saying, you know, what happened with the UFOs? And some of them will say to you, oh, did you wanna, some of them will say, did you wanna ask us anything about the uh, ghostly phenomena that we had that night? Yeah. Uh, because yeah. Our, our dead uncle showed up in our living room and he just gave us some messages, some, you know, about love and friendship and, and being good to each other. And we asked him if he was here because of the UFOs and he didn't know what we were talking about. And then, and then he just disappeared, and that was it. And then you'll go to other people that will have, well, uh, Bigfoot was at my window, and he was stalking around my yard, uh, and it was the same night as the UFO, the same night that the UFOs were being sighted over that neighborhood. And so in the conclusion that I've come to is that a lot of this phenomenon crosses each other, they cross each other, and even though they may not even be aware of each other, and that's because I believe they are all extra dimensional in nature, and that's that's why I wrote my book, The Extra Dimensionals, that's the reason.
0: You know, and that's so heavy, because it's something that, since the early days of our little show we've been doing here, it's something that Doug, one of the old hosts, and I used to talk about a lot on and off the air, was we've... After talking to so many people and having experiences ourselves, we we are convinced that, yeah, there's some stuff that's happening here that we can't explain, right? And what we came to the conclusion of was, okay, stuff happens, whatever it may be, whether it's cryptids or UFOs or ghosts or whatever other weirdness that happens on this planet. How is it all related, Right. And that, that question, what what you're, what you're talking about more or less answers that question is, and, and, and something I've noticed, it's been getting talked about a lot also, John, uh, when I heard, when I heard somebody say it initially that, well, Bigfoot's just, you know, it's an extra, extra dimension, I'm sorry, extra dimensional creature. Uh, it's. I thought I started laughing, to be honest with you. Which I, you know, how could I be that closed-minded in the first place? But I couldn't help myself. I started laughing. I'm like, that's ridiculous. It's 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 an animal. We just got to find the thing. It, it'll come up sooner or later. But once the more I've been riffing on this and thinking about this idea, and this isn't the first time I've heard it tonight. You know, and the more I hear about it though, the more sense it seems to make. The more, for example, with Bigfoot, with a sasquatch, for example. Yeah. You know, it seems like after all these years, we would have come across some some type of proof. Right. Right. Uh, and and we don't. But when you introduce this extra dimensional idea. It makes sense. And a lot of these things seem to make sense with that. Maybe this whole thing that we've been experiencing or that we've been studying all been studying for decades now decades is simply explained by this idea of there's another dimension and every once in a while, like they say with Sawin, Halloween, the veil thins and things come right. through. It's cool.
2: You know? Right. This is all a question of this entire area. It's all a question of portals and wormholes, portals and wormholes. And a lot of the phenomena, once that portals are opened, there's a lot of stuff that comes through and it's not just UFOs, you know, and that conclusion is I've helped us. I've gotten to that by, uh, Uh, largely through speaking to a lot of these outdoorsmen because i'm not an outdoorsman but people who are i've spoken to people who are experts they are outdoorsmen Mm -hmm. and they will be in parties that are specifically formed to hunt these book bigfoot creatures and they will be and lots of people have heard these stories they will be hunting this thing that is making these incredible sounds these sounds it sounds like they're coming from an elephant, Mm because it's so big, Mm -hmm. and breaking small trees, incredibly physical phenomenon, overwhelmingly physical, because this thing is breaking trees, Um, sometimes it'll toss boulders around, and it's running, but and yet it's running from them and their dogs as they chase it through the forest, out to the forest, to the foot of a cliff like this, which is just then a sheer wall that goes straight up and this thing will break from cover. And then they also break from cover into the uh, foot of the cliff and the thing's gone. It's gone. There is not a hair sample left on the trees. There is nothing hair skin. There's, it's gone. And the footprints stop right at the foot of the cliff that goes
0: straight up
2: into the air. It just disappeared. It just is gone. And it's hard for us to understand that something so overwhelmingly physical that was so overwhelmingly physical just a moment before, it just falls through the portal. It it's gone. That's why that's one of the things those experiences went a long way in convincing me that all of this phenomena across the board is extra-dimensional in nature.
0: And that's the glue. Yeah. I, and I, yeah.
2: that's a,
1: a... Well then how do you even begin to study that? Like all of these little you know hobby hunters paranormal groups out there with their gadgets and stuff waving it about it's like yeah. it's you i do you got a dimension yeah. a, a portal thing Well it's a whole there? different
0: problem you're trying to solve <laughs> yeah. then i mean Well yeah but know. it's it's
1: saying that current science it's really hard to i it, it's really hard yeah. to kind of investigate this stuff when it's beyond i think our i i don't know I, I, this is good, this my yeah. brain can't even wrap no, around no. this
2: Yeah it's because it's when it is physical, it's only temporarily yeah. physical, and even then, it's kind of semi, because there's no there's no hair samples left behind. There's no stuff. I mean, sometimes there's footprints. Uh, sometimes, uh, for instance, UFOs, will actually uh, things that we consider actual, real extraterrestrial UFOs will leave little imprints in the in the soil, mm-hmm. and they'll leave little markings in the soil, but. Other than and they'll leave a little radiation behind also, but other than that, I mean everything else disappears. It all disappears, just like with Bigfoot, just like the crypto creatures. Everything melts away, and it's just not there anymore. So yeah, that's uh, that's one of the reasons that uh, if you're going to be materially restricted uh, just to the materium, uh, there's there's very very difficult to prove this phenomena, the existence of this phenomenon. And that's why we don't have proof. And yet we kind of do have proof because magnetic, because of magnetic waves are, are very often able to be captured uh, in some form in photography and video and things like that. Uh, but even then it's like a shade. It's kind of there and it's kind of not. So that's, that's the problems. That's the proof problem in the paranormal yeah and that's something that's always always a problem
0: yeah and that i was we'll never in our lifetimes see that change i don't think i think that we're be like like amber was saying i think that what we're dealing with here these problems we're trying to overcome by getting proof of this yeah right it's just too big for us to try to understand right now yeah, yeah.
2: but and yet and yet there a lot of the proof tends to be experiential and and sometimes it can be recorded. Look, I don't, I don't recall where you guys are geographically, but uh, on December December 29th uh, of 2018, we just had this we just had an enormous portal open over New York City. It was seen by it was in the middle of the night and it was seen by thousands and thousands of people. Now, They didn't, for the most part, they didn't see the UFOs coming through because most UFOs tend to be invisible, unless they are somehow lit up for some reason because Mm. of the way the sun is, or, or there's some kind of lights going off in some particular direction. So there's only a few people that got a couple of UFOs coming out of the portal, Uh, but this happened, and there's massive numbers of people recorded it. And you can you can hear the people are terrified because it was a black night, it was no moon, there was no moon out, and it was pitch black out. Yeah. And then suddenly this portal opens up in the sky on December, it was December 28th, I believe, and lights up the sky over Astoria, Queens to a light blue color like it was daytime. And people were terrified, they were terrified. Mm-hmm. And this is not, and, and you probably, you guys probably didn't hear about this.
0: No, uh, because, we didn't.
2: Yeah, because you know how it, you know how it was reported, because it was reported by mainstream news as nothing more than a transformer blew up on the ground in Queens, New York. Uh, some electrical transformer just decided to blow up, and for some reason that lit the sky up light blue in the middle of the night. And uh, that's what had people so freaked out. Uh, so, this goes to the evidence thing that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. Evidence is there, it's there, but you gotta be willing to look at it and you gotta be willing to see it. Uh, because if you depend on mainstream media, you're never gonna see it, you're never
0: gonna find it. Well, that, and I think, we, and we've had this conversation also in the past here, and I think the evidence is there. I agree. I think it's put in front of our faces every day, not even on mainstream media. But I think, number one, I think a lot of people are just numb. We have so much information coming at us now in this day and age, we're numb. Number two, who do you trust? I mean, even non-mainstream sources, Amber is like jumping up and down. Well, what, no, because I have
1: a, I wrote a quote down from the book that I think is perfect for what we're talking about right okay. now. But yeah. um, John wrote um, in his in his book, "The Par Investigators control what people can consider as possible, and you limit their hearts and minds." Oh my God. And that's Brian. so yeah, true. Yeah, I'll just shut up now. That's the- <laughs> Thanks for <laughs> saying The rest of the podcast will just be reading selections from the book.
0: <laughs> reading selections from John DeSantis' latest book.
1: And John can comment. Yeah. That, um, yeah. No, but that's so true, though. I mean, yeah. that's and that's what's been done, I think, to us for, for a long time, even going back to the beginning of the whole UFO, um, you know, when you, you know, with Roswell and, and all that kind of stuff and aliens are here, you know, like control what right. we think is possible because, you know, that keeps us shut down.
2: It keeps us shut down in a way that is is actually pretty bizarre because this incident that i'm I'm pointing out to you right now Mm -hmm. is is people are stopped from looking at it uh just by misinformation and if anybody wants to look this stuff up right now i've got it i've got it in my reports that i give to people in my presentations all the time these portals these portals uh started opening up even before the new york city incident. It happened in Venezuela. You can look these up on YouTube and you can find them. Uh, a port, giant portal opened up in Venezuela on September 1st, 2018. Then in New York City that everybody knows about on December 28th, 2018. Again, in Kenner, Louisiana on, on the uh, on December 28th. Again, the same day, December 28th, Kenner, Louisiana portal opened up over that city. It happened in India, in India um, on the first of the year, on this January 1st, 2019. Then it happened in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Another giant blue portal in the middle of the night opened up over the city of Sao Paulo, Brazil, on the 5th of January, 2019. Again, Mexico City, Mexico. It happened <laughs> t- January 13th. 2019 then it happened in crossville tennessee again january 19th just a couple of weeks ago yeah 2019 crossville tennessee you can check these things out you can look them up they happened also it happened in south sweden uh, also on the 19th of january of 2019 again these enormous portals open up in the middle of the night and light up the sky light up the entire town, actually, uh, light blue. So it made it like it was daytime in the middle of the night. And then these people, some people recorded these UFOs coming through those portals. It's absolutely extraordinary. The information is out there, but people have to actually go and look, go and search, and they will find these things are actually happening. And it's not Transformers that are blowing up on the ground. Mm. That's a completely separate topic because a lot of these people filmed, people filmed these, we have our phones, people are filming these things everywhere. And in every instance, you can see that, uh, that, uh, the portal opens up for several minutes, five, 10 minutes, and it's there lighting up the entire city. And then, oh, and then the transformer blows up after about 10 or 12 minutes (laughs) <laughs> and they, cause they make, they're making the transformer blow up on purpose so that they can account for this portal lighting up the sky.
0: That's what they're doing. I think people, there's another step though, with that too, John, I think people, yeah, you have to go get, look for the information. You have to look it up. It's there for you to look up, but I think you have to process it also. I mean, I find myself falling into this pitfall and that's why I mentioned this. There's a lot of information that I, that I read every day. And sometimes, I think it's just one of my shortcomings, I think it's a lot of people's shortcomings too, is there's reading something and just reading it and then moving on and then there's reading something and actually digesting it, you know, and trying to understand it and make it a part of you, right? I think a lot of people just will read some, and I do this all the time. I'll read an article on something that I find interesting and I don't really process it. I just read it and go, okay, and I move on. And I think that's part of this thing too is, uh, people just read and they don't think about it. They just move on to their next thing. That's just my absolutely. Idea. Yeah. It's just an idea I, I have.
2: They do. They want to stay in their comfort zone. Mm-hmm. They don't want to go outside of that comfort zone. And mainstream media is really good at that too. They'll help people stay in their comfort zone. Oh yeah. Totally. By, by feeding them garbage and neutrality at all times. And do, that's what they—that's what they do all the time.
0: Do we have time to talk for a little while longer here? We don't want to. We—I don't want to keep you too long. If you have other things to do, John. No, no. I'm good. Okay, I'm good. cool. Please. Well,
1: I—I wanna—I want John to tell the listeners about the gray baby because yeah, you read my this mind. Was I read this and it was disturbing.
0: The floor yeah. is yours, John.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the gray baby was a story of a uh, a state trooper that had pulled over a dilapidated old Chevy in the desert town, uh, in desert town, California, and just pulled over the, this dilapidated old Chevy that was going up by over a hundred uh, down the road. And he was pretty happy when it pulled over right away onto the shoulder, onto the shoulder. And as he approached this thing, he felt like the air changed and he felt like there was a gloom that came over the entire area. Suddenly, it wasn't a sunny day anymore, and he just felt a prickly kind of feeling on his arms and a chill. He just felt a chill all of a sudden. And then he he stooped down. This Chevy had all the windows rolled down, and he stooped down, and there was no one in driver's seat, nobody in passenger seat. So he's like, okay. A person jumped in the back, and he saw, and sure enough, he saw a figure crouched down in there holding something. And again, it was like this unnatural gloom in the the vehicle as well. And he yelled to the driver to come forward to show what she had in her hands because she appeared to be holding something. And he said, driver, show me your hands. Show me what you have in your hands. And he had his face up to the window, and he's yelling in the back to her. And suddenly, this individual had unnaturally long arms. Uh, thrust um, uh, the person, well first thing that he heard uh, from the person was the person put a, a finger up to their lips and just told him told him shh, you'll wake the baby mm-hmm. and he said "And he said, I don't care, lady, you gotta come forward, I don't care, lady you gotta show me, show me what you got in your hands and then apparently she had unnaturally long arms because she jut forward this it looked like a figure swaddled in a flower print blanket and put it right up to his face, even outside the car mm-hmm. there. And it came right up to his face. And it apparently, and the first thing that hit him was this unnatural stench, like it buckled his knees. It was a smell, a stink that was so strong that it felt like he had been hit with tear gas. I mean, his the hairs on his arms stood up. And he just felt like he never smelled anything like that before. It was like rotting, rotting flesh. Mm -hmm. And the thing that was in the blanket was dark gray, uh, what had been a baby a long time ago. It was this swollen up kind of dark grayish figure of a baby had some blood trickling from the mouth. And it was right up to his face and then he could and then he he swore that he saw it open its eyes and reach out for him he jumped back he jumped back put his hand on his uh trooper lopez we call him trooper lopez he jumped back put his hand on his gun started
0: screaming
2: at the at the driver he just said he just said driver get back in the car get back in the back just just stay there. Don't move. Stay there. Mm-hmm. And he backed up all the way back to his vehicle, and he called for help. He called anybody that he could. He called the FBI. He called the fire department. He called state troopers. Uh, he called for anyone that would come. And then he just sat on the, on the side of his car. He sat out there in the dirt, and he just stayed there. And eventually his uh, his um, compatriots came uh other state troopers as well as other first responders. There was an ambulance. Uh, they were there to respond for the uh, for possible you know uh, injured, and uh, they were able to retrieve, get the uh, the woman, uh, and his partners came over to him, and they could see he was clearly in distress, and they told him, they told him, Don't worry about it. He said, they he said they told him there was nothing you could have done to save that baby. He says, don't, uh, don't be concerned about it. Uh, they told him, uh, basically, she was a woman who had been caught in a drug raid, and it was a woman that all she she took off. There was a shootout. Uh, her, her baby's daddy was killed, uh, and she just grabbed a stash of amphetamines and the dead baby and took off, and she'd been driving for two days when he saw her when he uh, interrupted her mm-hmm. and they told him there was nothing you could do for the baby. Cause they could see he was clearly very much in distress Yeah, and they told him there was nothing you could do for the baby. Don't worry about the baby. The baby had been dead for, for weeks. It had been dead. So don't, don't even give a concern. he said, and he kind of yelled at them, uh, that baby's not dead. That thing is alive. He says, I know it was alive because it was reaching out for me. And right as he said that, I mean, his his uh, fellow troopers were kind of stunned. They were they were pretty much in shock, but they told him, uh, no, they told him, no, that baby's dead. It's absolutely dead. And right as they said that, the uh, woman who had been just kind of mewling over the baby, whispering to the baby the whole time, very peaceful. Uh, and truthfully, she could have walked out. She could have walked away as much as she wanted because that trooper was not going to, Trooper Lopez was not going to interfere with her. Uh, But they finally, the ambulance workers, they finally got her out. And for the first time, she started screaming and acting violent when they took the gray baby away from her. And at that moment, she looked back at him and he looked at her without wanting to. And she screamed in his direction, please, my baby, don't let them take our baby. And he just looked away and he cursed that that he looked at her right at that moment because as he told his, uh, his partners there, he said she was talking about our baby, like as in me and her, uh, because he felt that he now had ownership over that baby, no matter what happened after that. And he was clearly very perturbed by that. And he felt that the gray baby was, not only was it alive, but it actually had sought him out that day because the gray baby knew something about him that even his partners didn't know, which is that um, he was psychically sensitive. And they used that to bring him there and to get into his consciousness. And uh, that was what happened to him. And he was very, very much upset uh, after that. and was, He was never able to get the gray baby out of his consciousness after that, and he suffered. He suffered because of that
0: uh, tremendously after his meeting meeting with the gray baby. I've never heard a story like that.
1: It's disturbing. I've never heard it. And And even on a mundane level, you're still, I mean, the things that police have to deal with that are. Oh, it's a shit job. If we take the whole psychic psychic aspect out of it, what he was feeling and seeing that was beyond his his five senses, the, the stuff that you have to deal with and now becomes part of you is just ridiculous and how you have to process that. And then on top of that, if you're sensitive and you get this whole new layer of weirdness added on to the already level of absurdity that humans are, then yeah, it's just nuts.
2: And here's something that I found out later and it's weird, I found out from a television producer who was working with my book. Uh, She happened to be a Philippine extraction and she told me oh no the gray baby is a, is a known phenomena it's called tiyanak tiyanak and uh, apparently it is something that is real uh, that and it's known from the philippines uh, it's apparently if in the philippines if you if a baby dies and you leave it unattended for too long without giving it proper bear, burial rites uh, there are actually demons called Tianak that will infest the baby and bring it sort of back to life, in a really? kind of evil way. And if you, you know, again, you can look this up. It's a common, it's a common phenomenon in, um, in the Philippines apparently. And it happens and it's in the newspapers and there's people who, who, who get uh, arrested yeah. for because they said they were attacked by Tianak and the gray baby came after them, and they had to stop it, and it mm. leads to some really crazy, crazy stuff. And I did not know this until recently mm. that this is a that the gray baby is a real phenomenon.
0: This officer, I mean, I'm, I'm I don't know if you know any if how he's done since that situation. I mean. As you already said, he carried that. He's probably carried that with him since that night. I'm, I mean, is yeah, there any update on him at all? Have you heard, or is it just something that's just—it's just a story?
2: <laughs> yeah, he psyched out. I mean, oh, he psyched out of the force and on uh, a psychological disability. And he's yeah. doing other things now. I don't know what, but uh, yeah, he's—he's he's no longer in law enforcement. Uh, largely in part because of what he suffered with the gray baby.
0: I never. I I'm gonna say that one more time, and I'm gonna leave it alone. I've never heard a story like that before. When it yeah. comes to this type of stuff, um, and as Amber said, it just drives that point home that I think you know people in law enforcement, men and women who are in law enforcement. Uh, I know people that are that are that work in law enforcement. I've heard the horror stories. I've seen the horror stories. All you have to do is go on YouTube and and see what I think people in law enforcement have to deal with. And I mean, on a disturbing level, I mean, as, as a law enforcement officer, I think people, those people have to deal with the people who have the worst behavior. You're dealing with the people with the worst behavior. That's why you're in law enforcement. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. Um, And that can lead you down some very disturbing roads. So when you're faced with something that you can't explain, I can see why that would put the hook in you. And yeah, it may, it may, drive you out of that line of work uh and i and i, no. I certainly hope that that you said trooper lopez uh yeah. I, I certainly hope he's doing okay that's i've never heard a story like that it's so heavy message in the static that's, i gotta get away from i gotta get away from the gray baby because it's just it's giving <laughs> it's making my the hair's of my neck stand up i don't want to i mean don't get me wrong john i <laughs> i'm super interested in that but i gotta get away from it so can we talk about message in the static
2: yeah, Messaging Static was a case that happened in uh, November 1989.
0: There was uh,
2: an FBI investigation against uh, some supporters of international terrorism. It was a husband and a wife. They were suspected of uh, giving uh, support to uh, these uh, terrorist groups. Mm-hmm. And so it was a family. There was, a, <clears throat> there was a, a husband and wife with a few daughters, and they were... Here, they were recent immigrants uh, to the United States. <clears throat> and because they, were, because they were suspected of supporting terrorism, uh, they had, uh, the uh, government had to plant some listening devices uh, in their home as part of the investigation. And so that's what happened. And when you plant those, and, and the only reason that I can talk about this case is because the New York Times printed everything. About this case in the newspaper, okay. uh, in the ninth in the 90s, they basically gave every detail of what happened, and it's something that people can look up today. And it's amazing. Uh, they were they were threatened by the government for doing that, but uh, ultimately they they were allowed to to get away with that. Yeah. Anyway, there were when you plant those devices, it means that you have to get a bunch of uh, of uh, Arabic translators to uh, to work on those cases 24/7, and to listen to every bit of conversation, to everything that's going on. Uh, and so, you it's a pretty it's a big undertaking. And one of the things that we noticed that happened was that every night, uh, every night at about 12:04 a.m., just past midnight, there would be a a buzzing sound, interference sound that would come across. So about six seconds, it was six seconds, and it would just happen. And so the the translators took care of it by just putting in, writing in unintelligible, Mm. uh, you know, not understandable. And then that would be, that would be it. And then you just, you know, six seconds of static, that was it. Just six seconds of static. Well, we had one translator who was one of these uh, overachievers, over and above normal duty type person, And she decided to listen to this buzzing a little more carefully. She amplified it, cleaned it up, and she was able to make up some words, make out some words out of it. Mm -hmm. And the words were were alaba tahtal, aibna, uh, parents kill daughter, uh, in Arabic. And she brought that forward to the uh, people in charge of the investigation. Um, Oh, actually, no, she didn't. She brought this forward to to me, and we decided uh, what to do with it. And then we brought forward to uh, the people uh, who were in charge of the investigation, because she said, because we had one of their daughters were missing, one of their daughters were missing. And so she hypothesized that they killed the missing daughter. The parents did, uh, because they were very sort of jumpy about the missing daughter. It was subject that was very mysterious and everyone was wondering what happened. To the missing daughter so she brought forward this and she we she wanted to have them arrested uh basically for the homicide or for being involved for being suspected of being involved in the missing daughter that occurred well uh, her uh, her messages uh were rejected by the bosses uh there there at the fbi and they were not taken seriously Uh, and so a short time later, the mother and father of the uh, and she explained to us that the reason that she ex- the reason that she highly suspected that this was a message to tell us that they had killed the missing daughter uh, was because honor killing is a very uh, is a very uh, popular sort of tradition with these jihadi families mm-hmm. uh, the ones that uh, they feel that when a daughter Especially from a very religious uh, family, makes them suffer shame. They are justified in killing her. That's a real thing. That's so, and she's from the same country, so the translator was. So she explained to us how that works and how it's a it's pretty much a common thing among the most highly religious jihadi sort of families. And so she said that's why she's sure that that's what this message is trying to bring to us, and that's why and that's the reason she's bringing it forward. Well, she wasn't listened to. And a short time after that, the youngest daughter was attacked by her parents. Uh, they actually found out that she was spending time with a kafir boy, uh, with a, uh, a, a an American boy. Hmm. And it was a huge scandal. The parents uh, confronted the daughter. They got into another screaming match with her. uh, And then the mother attacked the daughter. This is a 16-year-old girl. 16-year-old girl. Mother attacked the daughter from behind, grabbed her by her arms, slammed her down on the carpet right on top of one of the microphones uh, that had been planted under the carpet. And she held her down. And the father came forward with a butcher knife.
0: Oh my God.
2: From the kitchen. And he started screaming at her that she has to listen to her family. She has to listen. And then he started stabbing her, stabbing her in the chest. And she screamed, you know, for mercy. She said, she squealed for help, for anything. And the father stabbed her six times, I believe. He stabbed her six times and stabbed her right in the heart and his only answer she was pleading for mercy was he said to her hurry up and die my child hurry up and die and at the end uh, she didn't die easily uh she, no. she was sputtering and at the end the father put his foot over her mouth to muzzle her screams and she finally she finally did die and basically uh all the you know, everything went crazy, and the parents were arrested. The, uh, everything had to be declassified in this case, and the parents were arrested uh, for the murder of their 16-year-old daughter, who they, who they killed on tape uh, while tape was running uh, from the FBI. And, you know, the message that they were trying to give us was ignored because the message... Was not about the previous daughter disappeared. It was about this one, uh, and that's what the six seconds every night was about. And he stabbed her six times in the chest, and she died right there, right there, uh, on that on that tape. And it was a
0: horrible, horrible thing. Yeah. Oh, that could have been avoided. I don't know what to say, Amber.
1: I'm so bummed. <laughs>
0: and i know that wasn't your intention no. john but uh wow uh i mean i am yeah, do done i'm like done that. <laughs> what's that john i'm sorry
2: what can you say to something like that? no you that?
0: can't i mean what I, I i was gonna you know i no you can't formulate i it's funny because you know some, I mean, a lot of the stuff we talked about tonight, John. I mean, it did follow, with the exception of the sheriff's basement. A lot of these stories kind of circled around uh, around this idea of children, right? Uh, it, it, it's a powerful thing. Go ahead, Amber. What's well?
1: Up? If we want to end, I mean, this is sort of depressing because it's nine nine eleven. But um, speaking of kids, one of the things I read in John's book was the uh, yeah. was about the Indigo Kids. And yeah. that right before 9/11, and I didn't know this because I st- I, I almost still feel like. Nine Eleven's a little taboo to talk about hauntings, like you know hauntings down at Ground yeah, Zero. Yeah, I don't think we're ready for that it, yet. It's still kind of one of those like too soon. <laughs> yeah,
0: and even it's too though it soon. was a
1: while ago, but hey, if you if you were there watching all that happen, no, it we, was we all lived through that. Yeah, it's, it's just too much, pretty bad. So, yeah. but this is interesting. I I didn't know that you know Indigo, Indigo kids. I I don't know what their age groups are, but like they're they're kids that have been born. I don't know if I want to say within the last like twenty years or. Or so, or yeah. supposedly. I think they're. I think Indigo kids yeah. can be really mm-hmm. of any generation. But you're, you're intuitive. You're psychic. You're sensitive. Mm-hmm. And then a bunch of these kids were supposedly having premonition, premonitions or dreams about yeah. 9/11, and people actually calling them on a phone. Um, I don't know, John. Can you ex- can you explain those
2: better? Yeah, we had uh, just in the days, even just the days before 9/11 attacks occurred uh, in New York City. Uh, we had there were kids, uh, dozens and dozens of kids all over the country, uh, as young as young as five years old, going all the way up to twelve years of age, that were having premonitions and visions and dreams and experiences of the events of 9/11, uh, and they were you know expressing them as best they could to the adults around them, whether they were caretakers, teachers, babysitters, and they were just letting them know. We had one kid. You go on my Facebook you can see my trailers of my of my books um, and we have one kid who did this great artwork he did a finger painting artwork where he showed two tall buildings and the teacher came over to him and said oh those tall buildings are so so beautiful uh, they appear to be glowing and these these sort of angels with red wings are flying out of the buildings what's what is all that and the child the little boy told her, uh, the building's not glowing. It's on fire. And those oh aren't uh, those aren't angels. He says, those are people who are on fire. Oh, my God. And they're God. jumping out of the buildings. And so the teacher didn't think much more of that until 9-11 happened. And then, you know, we set up all these intel centers said, call in anything that was suspicious, yeah. anything at all. And so she called in the information about this kid. And, and this kid and many others like him had to be interviewed. About any possible connection to terrorism, uh, because you know we we're trying to gather any intelligence, anything yeah. at all. Uh, and so it was kind of bizarre because some of these kids didn't barely remember their experiences. Um, you know, we had, we had another little girl who was at the uh, at the playground and wasn't playing with any of the other kids. And instead, she was just tracing things in the dirt. And the and the teacher's assistant would come over to her. And tell her, Hey, are you okay, sweetheart? What are you what are you doing? And the, the little girl said to her, I'm just thinking, just I'm fine, I'm just thinking. And so the teacher's aide goes to walk away, and the little girl pulls on her skirt kind of violently and says to her, Tomorrow, stay away from tall buildings. She said, Because tall buildings sometimes fall down and they can fall on people.
0: <sighs>
2: and she walked away from her and yeah. didn't think more about it, except that 9-11 happened the next day. And so she did also report that. And we had lots of individual cases like that where yeah. that uh, occurred all over the country with these young kids that had came up with these experiences, and they each had to be investigated for their families for any connection to terrorism. In every single case... Uh, it came back with no connection to terrorism mm-hmm. at all,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and yet, so the paranormal explanation was the only explanation there was for these kids having these experiences, and so I'm I, I like to think that uh, uh, some mysterious agency, hopefully, came forward and uh, and uh, helped each one of those kids develop their powers after after we were done with our investigation.
1: All right, won't that be nice? Yeah,
2: (laughs) yeah, yeah, that would be nice.
0: Ghostly Talk!